Hi, welcome to another episode of Up To. Eight years ago, Up To started as a live event series showcasing leaders who are as humble as they are successful. The humility piece is extremely important as we identify leaders who can inspire others. We try to focus our interviews on the non-business aspects of their lives, and in doing so, have found there is a real thirst to explore their hearts and minds in atypical ways. Today, we're going to do things a little differently as we turn the tables on our host, Adam Kaufman, to learn more about him. We'll talk about his background and how he found himself in a leadership role that he didn't quite feel that he deserved. We'll discuss the power in honest relationships and respect for people's privacy and how a health scare changed his life and career path. Next, we'll hear about how he found himself working in venture capital, his primary line of work, and how he approaches his work in that field. And finally, we'll talk about the power in keeping your mouth shut and listening more and tips for working hard and being a family man. Right now, you're listening to the Up To Podcast. We're glad you joined us. We'll be right back. Right now, I'd like to take a moment to talk to you about Calfee, Halter, and Griswold, a full-service corporate law firm with attorneys throughout Ohio and in Washington, D.C. Calfee's mission has been to provide meaningful legal and business counsel to entrepreneurs and investors, private business owners and nonprofits, public corporations. I've referred many successful entrepreneurs and investors to Calfee knowing how well they'd be taken care of. And it's for those reasons that I would encourage you to visit their website, calfee.com. That's C-A-L-F-E-E.com. Thank you very much to Calfee. Hi, I'm Adam Kaufman. I've asked one of my favorite people to come in to be our guest host today, Chrissy Sanders, and more about her in a moment. We're in the middle of our second season of Up To, and there's been a number of people who've asked about me. Apparently, in an effort to be humble, I've said too little about myself. So we're going to let Chrissy open things up today and ask a few questions. Hopefully, she'll be nice to me. What is my background? Who am I? How did I get to this position? How do I know the people I know to be on the show, etc.? So while I was reluctant to talk about myself during an episode, I had zero reluctance once we decided to do this to ask Chrissy to be the guest host. She's not only a journalism major, but professionally, I've been very impressed with her. She's the founder of Next Play, which is a sports advisory firm. She works with a lot of professional athletes and she has a background in marketing as well. I do want to ask her a few questions today. Maybe I'll slip those in. But for now, I will introduce you to Chrissy Sanders. Thanks so much for having me, Adam. And I really appreciate you asking me to do this. And I'm curious on why you asked me to do this. I just thought of you right away when I was trying to think of someone who was an early enthusiast for what we were trying to achieve with Up To. And I was impressed with you when we first met through Jumpstart. And then we spent a little time together talking about some of your business goals. We seem to have a rapport with each other, right. even though we're from kind of different worlds, that <laughs> it might be a good melange of uh, backgrounds and uh, two different lenses on which to look at things and talk today. So hopefully that's okay. That's perfect. Like you said, you and I have been friends for like a really long time. I actually feel like I've known you for like longer than we've known each other yeah. because it was like an instant rapport. So I'm super pumped to do this because um, you've been a really great mentor to me like throughout Thank this you. process of founding a company, which is extremely difficult. And mm-hmm. I know like some of your guests have spoken to that before. Yes. So, um, <laughs> you know, and you've definitely a 
advised me and taught me how to build a lot of relationships, which we'll talk about today. Awesome. Well, my pleasure. I'm rooting for you. I applaud the entrepreneurship. Thank you. Appreciate it. So um, we might as well get started. Welcome to your show. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) You know, so um, this is probably like one of the first times you've actually, you know, had the tables turn on you. The first. I actually think you should be on more podcasts. That's just me, though. Like, you know. If you have a podcast, I know you do. You can invite me on. (laughs) So um, just a little bit about you. Um, You went to Wittenberg University. You grew up in Washington, D.C. You're a partner at OVO Fund. You started Up To, which is this podcast and also a foundation element to it. You're very actively involved in Path North. And you're also an advisor in Jumpstart. You've been doing that for the last couple of years. And you still find time to be a family man, mentor entrepreneurs, and, you know, just be an all-around good guy. So, like, how did you kind of, like, find your way into this world? So where did you start at? Growing up in D.C., I thought I would spend a life in politics. Uh, You can't help but have an opinion about political affairs growing up in Washington. No way. (laughs) (laughs) But I did end up in uh, Northeast Ohio. My wife's family is in Cleveland. And I was running a uh, nonprofit called Health Network where we networked uh, successful families, uh, frankly, very affluent families into the top hospitals in the world when they had medical problems. So it was up to us to know where are the best places for every possible malady you might think of, and many I had never heard of until we were called about it, and not only knowing where were the best physicians or surgeons, but also having the ability to get people in immediately or like the next day. Mm. It was very common for us to get a phone call where someone would say, Mr. Kaufman, uh, my wife was just diagnosed with breast cancer. We're here in Tulsa. The plane is fueled. Where should we go? Right. So it was up to us to know how to take care of that. And through that process for the next six months, I would uh, get close with the family that we were trying to help. And then afterwards, we might solicit a donation from that family to support the hospital. And then that in turn would help us the next time we needed to go to that hospital when someone else called. So I did that for a decade. Oh, wow. It was really, um, really a wonderful experience, very rewarding to help people find cures or to get better, whatever their problem was. Uh, I actually say it's like an incomparable joy to help someone help their loved one with a health matter. And so you come from healthcare, which and in doing a and job— And I wasn't qualified at all to be in that role. They hired me at 32 <laughs> to be the president. I mean, I don't think a lot of people are qualified, but a lot of times when you have the work ethic and a lot of the type of values that you bring to the table, um, it's easy to kind of have some transferable skills. So um, I definitely see how you were able to— be really successful in that. Now, when you were in healthcare, were you even thinking about startups? Like, I know you're in startups now. How did families really start bringing you into that? Yeah, it was unexpected. I like that question. I get asked it sometimes, like, why am I involved in early stage startups now, having done that for 10 years with Health Network? I unexpectedly got into this situation where once we helped a family and we earned their trust with what I called our day job, helping with the knee surgery, then these very private, discerning families would invite you into their world. It was a very desirable situation to get invited into their world, and we had earned their trust, so they might ask me to do something else. So after the knee surgery was solved, maybe a year later, that same family would say, um, hey, Adam, my son's starting a, a, a manufacturing software uh, company. Do you know anyone who likes to invest in startups? And I might 
just connect some dots and try to help this family that I like. There was no financial benefit for me to do that other than just trying to help a stakeholder in my life. Mm-hmm. But that's how I discovered that I really like this world of early stage startups and working with entrepreneurs and investors and matching them together and the high risk, high reward nature of early stage companies. It just gets my belly rumbling. And it was an unexpected um, fondness that I developed over time. You know, that's so funny that you should say that, because I think that when you really start looking at the most influential leaders and stuff, a lot of times the career just takes such a different path. Mm. That is how I got into sports as well. Like I was working, I was a marketing director. Yeah, you have a unique uh, (laughs) business sports advisory work. Yes. And I had no intent to be in there whatsoever. I think that's why it's really important, you know, people like you learning how to build those transferable skills. Well, I didn't expect to be in the role I was at Health Network, Mm -hmm. nor now. So I won't tell anyone you're a fraud in your industry if you don't tell anyone that I'm definitely a fraud in my industry. (laughs) I think everybody kind of figured it out by now. (laughs) Probably. (laughs) Like they should, when I show up, they're like, what's, what's going on? Who's she? Right. You know what I mean? Yeah. I always just say I'm an Uber driver, you know what I mean? But you do cool things though. I remember you had that um, event in Beverly Hills with Porsche and you invited (laughs) me. I wish I could have gone, but I'd like to be in your world. You know, it is. But I think that one of the biggest things like you always talk about and we'll talk about later is I always ask myself, how could I add value to people's lives? Right. And I really saw the opportunity where representation was lacking with athletes. And it was really about building value, Mm -hmm. which, you know, you really kind of saw that opportunity as well in the um, healthcare world when you would meet people in traumatizing situations. Very much so. So at that point, you know, you're holding their hand and they're like, Adam's my friend now. So it's like, now I trust him with my son's company. Now I trust him with my money. Now I trust him. That was unexpected. (laughs) Right, yeah. That's very intuitive of you because I didn't know that that was happening while it was happening. But when you can help someone help their son with their most sensitive matters, brain cancer or bipolar disorder, and we were just the middlemen. We're obviously not the medical providers. We were just the middle middle people connecting them to the medical providers. But if you can tactfully and politely, but sometimes assertively lead them through that process, Mm -hmm. you can really uh, earn some um, desirable relationships. You know what really always impressed me about you is how you're able to nurture, build relationships, connect people, and still kind of retain some confidentiality, which I think is really important in affluent worlds. Yes, they care about that. How were you able to kind of do that? Well, it was a double need to be private. One, it was medical. So not just affluent people, but all people require privacy on medical matters. But doubly so when it's a person of influence or a public figure or certainly a family with a lot to lose. One time I remember a gentleman who is on the Forbes uh, list of wealthiest people in the world He was flying into a city per our recommendation. And in addition to the medical matter, uh, we were setting up uh, his hotel stay. And so I I personally, because of his stature, I was contacting the general manager of the hotel. And ahead of time, I asked this gentleman, you know, do you want to use your name? And 
he was being polite, but he was kind of laughing at me. He's like, no, no, Adam, in his accent, he was from another country. <laughs> we, we can't use my name. Uh, uh, public markets would be affected wow. if uh, anyone knew I was at the hospital. Oh, wow. So that's how I kind of learned to always be private mm-hmm. and to always assume that the person we're talking about or thinking about wants privacy. And if they give me permission to share something, then I will. And now in the business world with investors, like when we're raising money, I don't tell investor number two that investor number one invested with us Mm. unless I already asked permission of investor number one. Can I share that you're involved in this project? Because that would lend credibility to the project. And they almost always say yes. But once in a while, investors will say, no, I'd rather be left out of it. And that's perfectly understandable. Wow. I mean, and that's such an important thing. And I think that as a young professional, it's super important that people hone in on what you just said, because um, especially in this age of social media, totally, people, they love to tell everybody who they're with. But one of the big things in our industry, people say those who know don't talk and those who talk don't know, you know, like and um, it's just really refreshing when you try to, you know, connect me with people. You you always ask us both mm. separately. Yes. Which really stood out. To oh, me. yeah, I know. You mean. I don't love it when some Somebody emails me and copies one of their friends and saying, you two should talk. Like, what am I supposed to do with that? Has that happened to you? All the time. Everything I do is permission-based. But then usually people are going to say, absolutely, but it's just better to ask first. Exactly. You, you're in healthcare networking. You're building these amazing relationships. You're adding value. You're a young man at the time. Um, No longer. Yes, correct. (laughs) You walked into that. And you are, uh, you're 10 years into this thing. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, you're like, I'm all right, I'm going to go run a marathon, which a lot of people do, you know, as they kind of age. I was turning 40, wanted to do another marathon. (laughs) Exactly. I didn't want to, I didn't want to say what You were being private. That's good. (laughs) Of course. Yeah. So I was turning 40 and I hadn't run a marathon since age 30. So I thought it was time to prove it to myself that I could do this again. Do you want me to talk about this right now? Please. Yeah. So a group of us, all of us, I'd say, are athletes in this group, but we're not like distance runners. Mm-hmm. So we had to really train to get up to 26-mile capability. So it took four months for us to train, and we were all in different cities, and we picked the Big Sur Marathon out in Northern California. It's gorgeous right on the Pacific Coast Highway, the Monterey-Big Sur area. But I figured I'm going to be exhausted no matter where I run the race. I might as well have a gorgeous gorgeous views. So that's how I picked Makes there. Makes sense. Yeah. So we ran the race. We all finished. And the next day I flew home from San Francisco. So long flight, saw my family, kissed my lovely wife, and then left again the next morning to go to Florida for a work trip. Mm-hmm. And then the next day flew back from Florida. So I had these three flights in four days. And exactly one week after the race, the following Sunday, I was awakened by this Chrissy excruciating pain in my left calf that even now, eight years later, I can't really adequately articulate how painful it was. I couldn't figure out what could hurt so bad in my calf where I was still alive, but it was just unspeakably painful. That's brutal. And were you scared at the time? At three o'clock at first, I wasn't scared. I was like, oh, what's going on? But by 3.30, I was very scared. I was worried I was going to pass out just from the pain, Mm. let alone whatever else was going on. Right. And I think we all know now, science tells us, like, the more nervous we get, the worse things get physically. Oh, 100%. It was just getting worse and worse. Thankfully, I was at home. Half my life, I'm in hotel rooms. So thank God I was at home when this happened so I could wake up my wife. 
and say, Claire, I think we need to go to the hospital. Mm -hmm. And we did and didn't realize that I wouldn't be leaving the hospital for 11 days. No kidding. 11 days. 11 days. And you have a young family at the time. Yep. We had three young kids. And I think it's worth saying it just so that the people listening can really understand. You were in a huge state of transition at this time in your life, like newly married. That's um, true. Right. Yeah. Newly yeah. married, um, young daughter, two young sons, starting to build a blended family. Yeah. Well, thanks for saying that. This yeah. was real. Yeah. I was pondering yeah. this move away from health network because it was around the same time. Right. And then I had this life-threatening uh, illness. I had a blood clot, what's called DBT, deep vein thrombosis. Oh, my God. And afterwards, when we were out of the hospital 11 days later, my main physician from Johns Hopkins in Baltimore, even though I had great surgeons at the Cleveland Clinic taking care of me, but my personal physician had been at Johns Hopkins. He said to me that we were in 50-50 mode of survival oh for a couple God. days there. So I didn't know that during, of course, mm -hmm. but it was it was pretty serious. So I'm more grateful than you realize to be sitting here talking to you right now. And I mean that. Right. And what was really impressive about the whole situation, too, is most people, they might go back to their regular lives or whatever. And then you were like, I'm making a change and I'm going to do something that I love and what yeah. I like. Yeah. Time to make a change. Right. I, I loved my health network life. Mm -hmm. um, but I certainly love my post health network life. I think it's kind of healthy maybe to reflect at age 30, age 40, age 50, what do you want to do next? Right. Personal goals, professional goals, et cetera. Okay. So I didn't ask for this um, major recalibration of my priorities in terms of the blood clot. Yeah. But right now I look back and I think, um, boy, my, the process that occurred, the curves in the road that took place, um, navigating through them with my family's help and with God's help, uh, things, things are okay. So how did you get the courage to really make that step from um, the healthcare networks to full-fledged helping entrepreneurs, like the most riskiest asset mm -hmm. <laughs> in yeah. the investment class? That's true. You know, Venture capital. Yes. Not very safe. Yes. I don't know. Risk-reward mm -hmm. is something that doesn't resonate with everybody, but it resonated with me. And we had a very um, competent uh, team at Health Network that could continue on the work there. And I just felt like the timing was right. My wife was very supportive and I tried to, you know, early on evaluate opportunities before making the big leap. Mm -hmm. But we decided it was like the right time to do it. If not, then probably it would be harder later in life. Right. So um, have you always been fascinated by startups? No, I, to be honest with you, I can't say that I've always been fascinated by startups, but I discovered my fondness for entrepreneurship through that health network scenario where families would ask me to help mm -hmm. somebody raise money or I'd be exposed to the entrepreneur himself who needed the health care service that we provided. So it wasn't a lifelong thing. Some people tell you that they were entrepreneurs in high school. That wasn't me. <laughs> um, but I... Um, I'm really drawn to it now. And I mean, I just today I left a shared workspace where I was talking to 
four different entrepreneurs, and I was really stimulated by the things they were each working on, people much more creative than me. It's very impressive. I understand that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I'm not the most creative person myself. So I'm always impressed when I see entrepreneurs and what they're building and things like that. I've always been like a more analytical person. How did they think of that? Yeah. And then and then also put it together. I'm like, dude, I can barely do my printer. I mean, that's why we do this show. (laughs) I can't do a printer, but that, you know, they're wireless now, so we don't have to. They're a little bit easier. Oh, man, it sounds even more complicated. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, one of the reasons I love this show is I get to get inside the mind and the heart of a lot of successful entrepreneurs. So right. we've interviewed some amazing people and they really open up on on this program. And I love being able to feed my need for those stories through a program like this. Exactly. That is literally the best thing about doing a podcast is the simple fact that I think a lot of the guests don't realize it's more for the host than, <laughs> than the, the, the listeners. <laughs> exactly. Like, you know, I'm like, I, of course, I get to talk to Adam for an hour mm. and pick his brain and get some more advice, you know. Yeah, it's a relationship builder, frankly. I mean, the people I have on this show, I'm closer with now. And after you and I are on this show, we'll be closer now. It's just you know, this long form conversation, I think, is rare. Right. In today's world of tweeting and everything at our fingertips, literally, you know, we can search on our smartphones with our thumbs yes. for anything. Mm-hmm. And that creates an impatience, I think. So if we can slow down and have a long form conversation or listen to one, I think it's very desirable. I agree with you. You're listening to the Up To Podcast. We'll be right back. During the first season of the Up To podcast, I had several companies and entrepreneurs approach me about potential partnerships, but I'm really selective before choosing to do something like that. One choice we did make happily is to partner with Vivid Front, a full service digital marketing and website design agency based in Cleveland that works with both local and national brands. They've built their entire client base on referrals And they've won a lot of awards, including the 2019 Inc. Magazine Top 5,000 Fastest Growing Companies, North Coast's Top Places to Work, and several others. They're known for their talent. They're known for their creativity. They're known for their culture, a firm I liked before we agreed to partner together for the show. Check out vividfront.com, or you can email me, and I'll introduce you to their dynamic leader, Andrew Spott. Hello, my name is Adam Kaufman, and I'm thankful you're joining us today on the Up To podcast. I want to tell you about a group that I'm grateful for, and that is Town Hall, Cleveland's most popular restaurant, and one that I can say is the only place my wife tells me she can eat every meal, breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Town Hall was the first all-non-GMO restaurant in the U.S. a few years ago, and they're now expanding into Columbus, Ohio soon. I'm also very selective about who we choose to partner with for this podcast, and it was with open arms that I embraced the idea of partnering with Bobby George and Town Hall. To learn more about what they're up to, you can visit townhallohiocity.com. Welcome back to the Up To Podcast with Adam Kaufman, guest host, Chrissy Sanders. All right, so was OvoFun the only fund you've been involved with your whole life, or were you involved with anything else? Ovo Fund is a Palo Alto, California-based, what's called pre-seed stage, pre-seed venture fund. So it's very early Mm -hmm. before founders even have their product ready for the marketplace. Right. 
I'm also involved with Jumpstart, and mm -hmm. they have some venture funds too. So no, OVO is not the only one, but um, it's the one in Northern California where I'm pretty heavily involved. Yeah, um, pre-seed. <laughs> That scares me. Yeah, of course. <laughs> you know, like when I even think about, because you and I, we've talked about it. I'm like, let's do growth stage. <laughs> and that's okay. I mean, it's not for everybody. Sometimes when we're raising money for uh, either Jumpstart or OVO fund funds, and I'm talking to a prospective investor, mm -hmm. and I sense that she or he doesn't quite have the belly for this high risk, long time horizon asset class. I talk them out of it. Like, I don't want to just take on an investor who doesn't get the high-risk nature of this. And that's so huge, too, though. Yeah, I mean, the plus side is the successes can be quite successful. So we've had some companies that are 100x return, 200x return on our investment made. But that counters a lot of the companies that never even get off the ground that we invest in. I'm learning a lot more about venture capital and I'm involved with Jumpstart too. I think that's exactly how we met. Mm -hmm. Have you noticed so far, are there any kind of like key ingredients to the entrepreneur or the company that you guys look for that you kind of know that even though it's a risky bet, it's still a semi-safe bet? Yeah, I wouldn't say semi-safe, but <laughs> um, I'm biased towards repeat entrepreneurs. Mm -hmm. And some might say, well, that's not fair. Somebody always is a first-time entrepreneur. And that's true. But we also um, just look for the grit of the founder and the resilience and the ability to pivot if marketplace conditions change. Uh, uh, an entrepreneur needs to be headstrong. An entrepreneur needs to be willing to just plow through walls. Mm -hmm. But too headstrong could be bad because mm -hmm. then you're not listening to what the marketplace is maybe telling you. So it's, it's not a science, but it's an analysis, at least in our case, of the entrepreneur. Yeah, I agree with you wholeheartedly. And notice I didn't even name the product there. I didn't even say anything about the product. Well, it's hard to predict if a product's going to work. Because I, I think that is so crucial for people to truly understand is that the management, the personnel is so key to the success of the company because you can have a great product, but terrible personnel, and it will still crash and burn. Or you can have an average product with amazing people that'll do great. Exactly. And I've bought average things from amazing salespeople to prove the point. And so I'd rather, if it's one or the other, have amazing people with an average product. <laughs> yeah. And that's one of the biggest things too that um, I used to always say when I was in kind of automotive marketing, that people don't buy cars, they buy people. Hmm. So there's no difference between BMW of Akron, Canton, whatever, uh, Columbus, they're buying you, they're buying that relationship with you, they're buying Adam. Hmm. So, right. you know, because that's who they're going to come back and see constantly. Yes. So speaking of that, um, let's talk about the relationship between the venture capitalists and entrepreneurs and the perception of that, you know, because, you know, a lot of people see what happened to your industry is what happened to my industry. Once they made Jerry Maguire, it got way skewed. Mm. And so when they started making Shark Tank. That's true. <laughs> like right. 10 minutes. Yes. I'm buying. Right. Yeah. And a lot of times entrepreneurs don't always understand the relationship what the venture capitalist is in the company's right. development. And on that show, and I love Shark Tank, uh, and I do like that it's in the marketplace, so to speak, to increase people's awareness of what venture capital is. But yes, uh, it usually takes more time than those few minutes to decide if 
uh, a venture capitalist is going to uh, get involved in a particular founder's company. And most of the time you're saying, no, it's mm-hmm. not a good fit. Right. Either because you don't believe in the founder or the product or competitive situations, what have you, or the valuation of the company that the founder won't um, stray at all from. So in the case of, for instance, Ovo Fund, we have to look at, I think we invested in 55 startups in our first fund, 55 pre-seed companies, but we had to look at about 800 Mm -hmm. to get to 55 yeses. Yes. So if those, whatever 800 minus 55 is. I think that's 745. If those 745 founders or even if there's co-founders or even more, if they all walk away so mad at us, that's Mm -hmm. not a good thing. Right. So I still try to be helpful to founders and connect them to others um, who could be capital partners or customers or co-founders even. I still want to find ways to deliver value other than being the source of capital, which is originally what they wanted. Um, Because that uh, in turn hopefully will lead to future uh, opportunities when that founder starts other companies or gets into a later stage or has a new customer need that we could help with. Yeah, and I think that's what really makes you so special um, in in your space because I'm on Twitter a lot and I'm always, you know, checking out things that people are doing and reading about it. And I always notice that some people approach the venture capitalist space from just a one-way street. Like, they're the person on the throne giving out the money and you're like, how can I be a value to you mm-hmm. even if we're not working together? Mm-hmm. Which is so huge. And mm-hmm. I think that that's so key to building relationships because like you said, every business isn't going to work, but that doesn't mean that the entrepreneur may not come up with the next Facebook or the yeah, next Or Uber. refer another entrepreneur to right, us. Right, yeah. And that's so key to kind of balancing those relationships because it's tough to tell somebody no, but... What I call uh, relationship equity is what you're speaking about. Mm -hmm. And if you think of an ATM machine, you can make deposits into your ATM and you can make withdrawals from your ATM. Right. Relationships, I feel, are similar. You want to invest in a relationship. You can make a withdrawal once in a while, but hopefully Mm -hmm. your deposits are greater than your withdrawals. So I want to do as much as I can for others... And if down the road you can help me with something, I might ask you for a favor. Like I did today to be on the show, actually. (laughs) But as a stranger, you would have been like, no, I'm not going to be on your show. But hopefully I had already built up some relationship equity with you so that you would say yes right away. You trusted me to do it. And that's kind of how I look at things in my independent work, my jumpstart work, my OVO fund work, and with Path North is I just always want to help others connect dots. One plus one can equal three, not just two. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's thankfully served us pretty well. You know, um, I'm I'm always so impressed by how humble you are. And I'm not being humble talking about myself this much today. But the thing about it is you're sharing your philosophy, which is still humble because you're giving it back because you could keep it all inside. Thank you. Um, but I think it's so interesting how you always talk about building value and adding value and doing things for others. And I always tell like the athletes that I represent that as well when it comes down to it. It's like, do you want to engage or do you want to be admired? And a Mm. lot of times nowadays in the age of social media, people want to be admired, but they don't really want to, like you said, make those equity relationship deposits. It's too transactional. Right. So you started up to 
and you started doing these events, which is extreme value. I've been to a couple of the events. And then what's interesting, guys, about this and for the audience to know, Adam pays for everything at the event. So you come in the event, you get your cheese, you get your bourbon, your whatever it is that you want. And he does two interviews. So he's giving you knowledge and free alcohol. Thank you. Yeah, (laughs) right. Well, that all starts in college. If you say free food and drink, people show up, right? (laughs) Well, we we do have partners now that help support it. um, But thank you for saying that. Uh, I did start up to, as a live event, to deliver value to the stakeholders in my world, whether those were donors to something I was trying to raise money for or investors in something we were raising money for or recipients of those funds or other partners of mine, uh, political figures. We've had you know surgeons in the room, entrepreneurs like you in the room. And for seven years, we were just doing these live events and short 15-minute interviews. I came up with the idea when... TED Talks were getting so popular. Mm -hmm. Remember, at the time, it was really unusual to have those short talks. Now it's common, but that was very innovative back then. Right. So I thought, what if we could combine the best of what I knew the TED Talks to be and the best of another group I'm from called Entrepreneurs Organization. And I was involved in something called the Renaissance Weekends, where every attendee of the conference was also a speaker. It was extremely humbling. Like, you show up at the conference and they assign you your topic when you get there. So you couldn't prepare at all. Mm-hmm. And like Bill Clinton made the Renaissance weekends famous. Wow. He was going when he was governor and he, I guess, continued to go when he was president. And just, I was by far the least accomplished person in the room. The couple times I went and like the, the person, the next level up from me was like an astronaut. So that was like a big jump. Oh, perfect. <laughs> and, then it, and then it went way up from there. Right. So very humbling. Anyway, so I, I was flying back from a, uh, another San Francisco flight, uh, this one where I wasn't having a blood clot, thankfully. And I thought, let's combine these things and create a one evening event. Mm-hmm. And we did that seven years ago, inviting the 50 most interesting and successful CEOs or investors we thought might want to come. And fast forward years later now, we have not only the events, but this podcast that uh, came out of that. And I really feel like there's a thirst for curated content from a trusted source. If you can build trust with somebody, earn somebody's trust in this digital age, I think more than ever, curated content is desired. And so that's what we try to do, not only on this show, but in our live events. Up to the um, events that we do. Well, you do, mm-hmm. <laughs> but I come to so you're, many you're of them. You're a part of it, yeah. I feel like I'm a part of it. Um, like, And I know you're going to because you're so humble, but I read a book called Trillion Dollar Coach recently about Bill Campbell. He was an advisor to uh, Everyone Apple. in Silicon Valley. Everybody yeah. in Silicon Valley. And you kind of sometimes remind me of that. Like I was, wow. listen- I was listening to the book on Audible and I'm like, this is Adam. Like wow. there's going to be a book about Adam one day. Oh my day. gosh. <laughs> like dead not. serious. And he had this thing called, I think it was Bar. And bottom line, like uh, all of the entrepreneurs, all the people that, you know, Either they were thriving or not thriving, whatever case may be, that were all in his circle would come and have free drinks and talk. And it was not— Just a convening of peers and sharing. Yeah. Thank you so much, by the way, for all those kind words. Bill Campbell was a legend in in Northern California and nationwide. Um, We lost him a couple of years ago. But when we do the Up To events— we have like this unwritten rule, like no jerks allowed. <laughs> right. You know, it's not on the website. It's not on the <laughs> invitation. But 
we all know the jerky type who's maybe too solicitous mm-hmm. professionally oh my God. or too selfish personally, mm-hmm. self-centered, or folks who brag maybe beyond their true level of whatever they're doing in, <laughs> in society. We all know people like that. So we like to attract the opposite, the people who are understated. And that's why this, this podcast, the, the theme is leaders who are as humble as they are successful. So Bill Campbell was a great example of that. And a lot of times uh, you can really appear to be sharp. Like you were saying, I'm really sharp. I just usually listen to people. This is unusual. I'm talking a lot. Mm-hmm. Usually I just listen. Right. And the Bible says even the fool appears wise when silent. <laughs> so I feel like I'm a little bit smarter or at least perceived to be just by listening better. So whatever level of listener you are, uh, not just you, rhetorically you, all mm-hmm. of us, I would encourage everyone to try to be even a better listener. Mm-hmm. People want to be heard, whether they're talking about their personal lives or their professional lives, people want to be heard. Right. And you are always trying to learn stuff from people as well, which I think is super impressive, especially at the level that you're at. Because like you said, most people are like, been there, done that, seen mm. it all, you know. And I think that people really lose opportunities to come across good things, you know, when they have that attitude. One of our guests uh, on this show, his name was Philippe Bourguignon. He mm-hmm. was a, on an episode a few um, episodes ago, and he is an international businessman truly on the board of eBay for a decade, one of the most successful companies in the world, on the board of Neiman Marcus. He was the CEO of the Davos World Economic wow. Forum. CEO yeah. of World Economic Forum, biggest conference in the world. Wow. I got to step it up. Yeah. So, so no, he, you're a peer of his now because he was on this show just like you are. Right. Anyway, Philippe said something I'd never heard before, said the way he said it, but it's kind of like what you're talking about. He said in his wonderfully gravitating French accent that I won't try to imitate, but he said, pride can blind us. Mm, Yes. If we have too much pride, we cannot see where we could improve or what we can learn from others. Mm -hmm. So I loved hearing that pride can blind us. Growing up, I was obsessed with basketball, right? And um, But I never thought I would be working in sports to this capacity. Um, I thought I would be covering it in journalism. But I read this quote by Diana Taurasi, who is considered the mm-hmm. greatest female basketball player. Mm-hmm. And she said, I'm good. She played for Connecticut, right? She did play for Connecticut. Yeah. And she plays for the uh, Phoenix Mercury now. And one thing she said was, I'm good because I don't think I'm good. Love that. You know, it's very sim- it's similar to what Philippe said. <laughs> exactly. And she's like, I never think that I'm good enough. Mm. And that's that's that huge. drives her. Yeah, exactly. I like it. Yeah. So we should put that quote on the up to website. Seriously, you should. Yeah. Let's talk about um, you have this dynamic career. You're at Ovo Fun now. Every time I look on Facebook, you're in a different country. <laughs> you know, Ho- what I mean? hopefully I don't post too much. That's <laughs> no, I love it. OK, I love it. So. Somehow you're still a family man. Like, so you're like, oh, okay, I'm doing this with this person and that person. And then, oh, yeah, I'm at my daughter's soccer game. <laughs> <laughs> so, like, how do you maintain that balance? It's tough. Uh, a lot of us talk about balance and how to achieve balance in life. I don't know that this is the right answer for everybody. Mm-hmm. But for me, when I'm working, I'm always trying to have fun. <laughs> and when I'm having fun, I'm also thinking about work. Mm -hmm. Again, I'll underline, that's not the answer for everybody. And it's probably not ideal in my um, 
wife's perspective, justifiably, that if I'm not fully present when we're out to dinner or something. Mm -hmm. But I'm a human being. I'm trying to figure all of that out. Right. Thankfully, uh, we're blessed with three kids, and I do feel like we all have good relationships individually with each one of them. But it does take effort. Like, for instance, uh, my wife and I, when we got married, it was our second marriage for both of us, and we were getting married having already had kids. So we didn't have the traditional dating period in our lives where there were no kids. Mm. We already were establishing this so union with dates. three kids. <laughs> right, right. It was play dates. That's true. How, were you there? How did you know that? I was on the wall. Wow. Anyway, so someone gave us the advice when we got married that we should establish a date night, just my wife and I, every mm -hmm. Saturday night. And that sounds like no big deal, but you'd be surprised how few people, married couples, actually have date nights. Yeah. But now, 14 years later, my wife and I have 14 years to reflect on of adult-only time, sometimes just the two of us. Yeah. Sometimes we're plugging into some other event or a party or a wedding or something. But that was really good advice. But it took that concerted effort to, to keep the date night I use this as an example of just trying to pursue balance of personal and, and work, if that uh, is helpful at all. Yeah, and date night, um, I, I think people don't realize that's where you get on the same page as a couple. Right. Even though I'm single as a dollar bill. Mm. I read a lot of books. No. <laughs> but, <laughs> but like, um, you sound very good at it. Right. Yeah. But um, a lot of people say they get on the same page, and I think that's one of the biggest things when you have a partner— you have to, like, this is why we're working so hard. This is where we're going. It takes effort. Exactly. So you're always reminded of that on a weekly basis. Mm -hmm. You do that on a weekly basis. Yes. That's awesome. And I also see you take your wife places, too. Yeah. You've, yeah. you've met Claire at Up To and right. some other gatherings. And while she uh, would happily tell you she's not a professional business person, mm -hmm. um, I love having her in the room when we have those uh, gatherings because, uh, I'm, you know, I'm proud of her and I want her to experience everything I experience. And frankly, people like her way more than they like me. So <laughs> it's also an asset for me to have her in Good the room. Good charm, huh? <laughs> That's right. I hear you. <laughs> I hear you. See, that goes back to your humbleness again. You also do some things with Path North. Mm -hmm. So Very you, special group. And I went to one of those events and I was blown away. Mm -hmm. I actually, I'm actually going to say it before you do, because I was the least accomplished person in that <laughs> room. <laughs> Had no business being in that room. I don't know. But I appreciate you. Yeah, we, I remember your event, we had the uh, editor of the LA Times yes. interviewing Shelby. the most, yeah, you know, Shelby Coffee interviewing the most requested heart surgeon in the world. Right. Yeah. Bunch of slackers. <laughs> well, I was, I was asking him about my ellipticals in the morning. Oh, good. <laughs> good. Good. Did you follow his advice? I did, you know. Nice. I kept, I stayed with it. Mm. No, Path North is an amazing group. Uh, the founder, Doug Holliday, who's also been an up to guest, he created a peer group for his Washington and New York kind of colleagues for the purpose of broadening the definition of success. Mm. People who presumably have everything money could buy looking for meaning in their life, capital M, meaning, uh, beyond just the accumulation of stuff and trips and things that too often we find ourselves chasing in terms of cool cars or, you know, vacations or whatever suits and dresses we buy. So he wanted to broaden the definition of success by bringing together these super accomplished leaders. And then we talk about subjects that leaders too often don't have a setting in which they can safely discuss. Mm -hmm. For instance, 
when were you last afraid? Yeah. Or who do you need to forgive in your life? Who needs to forgive you? I recently asked somebody at an event, very accomplished person, if I was talking to your son right now, what would he say is the most important thing to his father? Wow. Big wow. And yeah. I, and I saw not only the person I was interviewing, but the audience thought about it in their own life. Boy, mm-hmm. what, would, what would my son say is most important to me? And so these are the types of things uh, we talk about at Path North. And um, it's a D.C.-based organization. And I've been lucky enough to be involved for about five years now. Yeah. You know, it's so funny because the one event that I went to at Path North, I had probably one of the most impactful and interesting conversations. Oh, really? Tell me. You've never told me that. Yeah, I did. It was with a gentleman, and he came from a family. um, I don't remember exactly what the business is, and we're on air, so it's probably back to confidentiality. He came from a long line of people. Successful family. Yes, very successful family. And you know me, um, self-made, first generation. Yes. And so a lot of, and on top of that, we were uh, cross-generational, right? And you just happened to be seated next to this person? Yes, exactly. And we were talking. I probably did the seating chart. (laughs) Exactly. So he and I were chatting and I could tell he was like kind of, stressed out. You know, you can just kind of like tell. And so he was was hesitant to kind of like say what he did. Because, to open up. Right. And so we were talking about this, the, the fact that people don't realize how hard it is to maintain a family business mm. and how it is to keep a generation going, the next mm-hmm. generation. Because mm-hmm. I think a lot of times, especially in this day and age, People always are so quick to get angry at people when they inherit wealth or when yes. they inherit yep. companies or whatever the case may Entitlement, be. Right. But Jealousy. they actually, I feel like, have it harder. Because if I crash and burn, I don't have any children. Like, there was no wealth before me. Yes. It was just like, Less hey, pressure. right, I start over. Mm-hmm. But you still have to maintain that family. I didn't know you had that talk with that individual. We, one time at Path North, <laughs> had a panel discussion. Yeah. And the title of the session was What It's Like to Grow Up with a Famous Last Name. Yes. And the panelists were Abigail Disney. Oh, perfect. (laughs) uh, Peter Buffett, Warren Buffett's son. Oh, wow. And uh, Tim Shriver, who's from the Kennedy family. He's chairman of the Special Olympics. Wow. And you're right. From afar, we think all of these people have everything. I'd love to be born into that situation. Mm Mm-hmm. Oh, and the fourth person was Ben DuPont. And I know all these people don't mind me saying the name. So DuPont family, everyone's heard of. His father was governor. All four of the panelists spoke of uh, addiction problems in their families Mm -hmm. and the pressures of getting into their parents' business. Yeah. What if I don't like filmmaking, Abigail Disney? Mm -hmm. Or what if I don't want to make cartoons for kids is what she said, actually. So you're right. Um, Just because... They're successful. These people also have stress. Right. And that's what Path North tries to address a little bit is the it's lonely at the top dynamic really is true. And the higher the top, the lonelier it can be. Right. So we try to create a safe environment because that in turn makes them better leaders for all the people that are working in those companies. People need to be free to express what's going on with them. Mm -hmm. Everyone. And ironically, the more more authentic we are and more people are drawn to us. Right. So hopefully by talking about my blood clot or my own health challenges, people might have one more reason to talk to me the next time they see me. We don't want to just talk about how everything is perfect. 
Mm-hmm. Too often human nature is we brag about where our kids go to school or what kind of car we just bought or where our vacation uh, I just posted on Facebook about took me. Mm-hmm. But actually, if we talk about things like our own health scares or the fact that I'm on blood thinner the rest of my life or that my father was an alcoholic, that ironically draws people closer. So I encourage all of us to don't talk about just our successes, but if we also lean into our failings and our worries, mm-hmm. That can be a good thing. I agree. So speaking of that and that childhood, because my my father, he was he had a substance abuse problem as well. Um, younger Adam, mm-hmm. growing up, Washington, D.C. Yes. Did you ever see yourself here talking to Abigail Disney? Um, <laughs> talking to Chrissy Sanders. Right. No, that's the amazing thing. Um, no, I didn't predict this. Um, I originally, as a young adult, had this blueprint for my career. Mm-hmm. Like a lot of people have this plan. Right. But um, my plan that I originally set out for myself got changed mm-hmm. uh, without my consent. Mm-hmm. But the sooner I realized that God's plan was perfect for me, the sooner I was relaxed about the future and whatever was in store for me would mm-hmm. be fine. But it takes a lot of um, effort right. because— I think men especially, I don't want to say just men, but men especially, we're so vain. We think we can control everything, (laughs) that if we act this way, it'll lead to this activity Mm -hmm. or this result. And that's just, that's just wrong because we really can't control everything. We really can't control that much. Yeah. I saw this um, Franciscan monk give a talk once. It was a group of CEOs and we're watching Father Richard Rohr at a conference and he has this amazing book called Falling Upward. Mm. And he was saying to this group of CEOs, about 150 of us in the room, he said, I took a vow of poverty in my own career. And once I did that, imagine how how many things I no longer had to worry about mm-hmm. because of this vow of poverty. Right. So he challenged us, what can you in the audience, I'm not asking you to take a vow of poverty, but what could you acknowledge to be true and therefore remove worries in your life. Mm -hmm. And he said, the sooner you realize that we're not doers, we're actually done unto. Mm -hmm. Think about that. We're not doers, we're done unto. The sooner you realize that, the less worry you'll have. And I've tried that, and it really does work. You know, as an entrepreneur myself too, and you probably see it a lot because you work with people my age, we can be the same way. Especially a lot of times you go into entrepreneurship because you have some type of drive to change the world. Mm -hmm. And you also usually, even though people don't like to say it, usually things have gone pretty well in your life. You are kind of like good, used to achieving things. And it's really hard to let go. And I remember one thing my mom told me when I first started and I I literally made the like biggest recruiting mistake ever in my life. And I was like, you know, my company's over. And she said, the sooner that you realize you're not perfect, the better off you'll be because we all figured it out. Perfect. I love that. (laughs) But that's wise. That's wise. And so she told you that when you were young. Yeah. So if you really believe that, I think it'll lead to less worry in your life. Yeah, and it was, and and it helps you go on and it helps you be resilient because you realize, like you said, we are done unto, 
things are out of your control and you're not perfect. But it's still you good re- to have goals. Right. You rec- re- recalibrate messing mm-hmm, up mm-hmm. every uh, every morning, right? Yeah, I call that navigating curves in the road. Usually when I'm the host on this show, this is mm-hmm. my show, Chrissy, not yours. <laughs> right. <laughs> but usually on this show, I ask people about how they navigated certain curves in the road. And that's kind of what your, your mom was helping you navigating this curve in the road with this bad HR decision you made. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, that's awesome. Exactly. So um, let's talk about what's next. Because you are fairly young, even though. I'm 49, bald at 49. <laughs> you talked about politics, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Do you ever think about going back into that? People have asked me that a few times. I... um. My wife and I, we've kind of chosen a different route still within politics is I like to find candidates that we believe in and just support that candidate Mm -hmm. rather than be the candidate myself. Right. I do like convening people of a like mind to support candidates. So we do a lot of hosting of fundraisers and then trying to deliver value or give advice, counsel to elected officials you know, after the election. But I don't think running for office myself is on the horizon. But again, I don't I don't want to pretend to know that my plan is determined by me. I really don't have that plan anymore, but not in the near future, I don't think. See any cabinet seats in your future if one of your politicians get elected? <laughs> I just want to make sure uh, everything's fine at our house. I mean, we got, we got plenty going on at home with, with three teenagers and uh, a lot a lot of work ahead of us. So probably not. I feel like you could probably be friends with anybody, though. Like, I really do. Like, I feel like you're that guy that you could literally be friends with anybody. Yeah, I like that. (laughs) Unfortunately, in this world, I think people are too polarized today. But when I was uh, a young professional working for the National Rifle Association, the Mm -hmm. gun lobby. Right. uh, One of my best friends lived with me in uh, D.C. And he worked for Dick Gephardt, who was then the majority leader, the Democratic majority leader. So we were literally working against each other on oh, campaigns, Yeah, but we, we, we loved each other. Mm-hmm. I do like um, having friends from different walks of life, different ages, different parts of the world. Mm-hmm. We're Lebanese. I love having uh, ethnic friends. Mm-hmm. A lot of it is around a meal. Right. You can really bond having a meal with somebody. You and I have had meals together before, and hopefully we will again. Continually. I'm super excited. And I always think of um, Town Hall, you know, which is one of your good friends. So one time we had the bone broth. That was my first time. Bone broth that. at Town Hall. Yes. So like I need you, some right now. You got me out of my shell with that because oh, I, I would have never done that <laughs> on my own. Wasn't it good? It was amazing. It was really good, actually. <laughs> well, you've gotten me out of my shell. Um, a few people have asked, how did I choose you for this special mm-hmm. guest hosting? Mm-hmm. And I said, I I love the dynamic, um, vibrant, youthful, energetic, intelligent personality that you are. Oh, thank you. And so you've really enhanced this show. So I want to thank you on air for um, doing such a terrific job. I appreciate that. Um, it was really uh, honor that you asked me to do it. I'm not even going to lie. And I took it really seriously. I took it actually probably more serious than my own podcast. No. And, um, great. Yeah, because I think even though you're so personable, you still demand excellence, which I love so mm. much. Like, Good. you know, and I think that's super important as a young person mm. to get around people who will let you fall on your face, which you've seen me do a couple times. We've all but done it. But still hold me to a high standard. And I love that. Well, you've lived up to it and you've graced <laughs> up to with your presence today. So thank you very much. No problem. The hour went so fast. Right. (laughs) Perfect. Thanks. My five big takeaways from talking with Adam is number one, building relationship equity. 
always add value to the relationships that you're pursuing and building. Number two, goals are good, but it's not always up to you. Feel free to let life happen and let go. Number three, whatever level of listener you are, strive to be even better. Number four, know when to pivot. Adam talked about navigating curves in the road and understanding that it's okay to change direction. And number five, you have to be intentional in your pursuit of life balance. All right, now I'm going to hand it right back over to Adam for our listener mailbag. Our Doug Holiday episode continues to generate a lot of feedback. Entrepreneur Tammy wrote... Your episode with Doug Holiday was brilliant. I listened to it twice and even took notes. I'm so happy you did this interview with him. I only wish I knew some of his lessons earlier in my own life. Thanks a lot, Tammy, for writing. And we continue to encourage all feedback. All feedback is welcome. Send me the good news. Send our producer the criticisms to adam at uptofoundation.org. Up To is a production of Evergreen Podcasts. A special thanks to our producer and audio engineer, Dave Douglas. I'm your host, Adam Kaufman, and thank you so much for listening to the Up To Podcast. <laughs>